Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us today. And if you've listened before, welcome back. Many of our episodes focus on dealing with stressors of different kinds. We've talked about how we can support ourselves during difficult times, stay calm under pressure, manage intense moments in our interpersonal relationships, and relate to and even recover from truly traumatic experiences. We all know the experience we're referring to when we say something like, I'm stressed. But the word stress has become very generalized, and understanding stress better can both help us come to terms with stressful experiences and lead us toward the tools that can allow us to become more resilient. So today we're doing a deep dive into stress. This includes what do we mean exactly when we say stress, the influence the modern world has on how stressed we feel, the biological basis of stress, and the challenges presented by long-term stress exposure. Then we're going to close by talking about what we can do about all of this, including some key recommendations. So to help me do that, I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, Forrest, and I'm extremely glad that we're talking about this fantastic subject. And yeah. I think back to Robert Sapolsky's classic, whose mm, mm-hmm. summary is contained in its title, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. How can we find that middle path, the yellow brick road maybe, in which we're dealing with the challenges of life, but without taking on the burden that gives us ulcers mm. and find that way that we can maybe learn something from the zebras. Yeah, totally. So I would love to start today with a deceptively simple question that gets to exactly what you were referring to there. What is stress exactly? The origins of the term go back to a neuroendocrinologist named Hans Selye, and I may well be mispronouncing the last name, who in Mm -hmm. 1946 wrote a major book called The Stress of Life. And he defined stress biologically in parallel with our psychological experience of stress. And he described the body essentially mobilizing to meet some sort of challenge or demand. Mm -hmm. Here's a really important point. Our bodies are mobilizing to meet challenges 24 hours a day, continuously. Yeah. So the real question is, what kind of mobilization is okay? What kind of mobilization is actually good for the animal, including a big bipedal animal like you and me. (laughs) And on the other hand, what kind of mobilization or what sort of mobilization plus negative pernicious factors is harmful Mm. for us over the long haul? And there's a Mm -hmm. kind of deep misunderstanding that clouds the field over the last uh, half century or 70 years or so by now, in which there's a kind of conflation of effort And the term stress, which usually involves something, quote, unquote, negative. And we'll be unpacking Mm -hmm. this as we keep on going. But I just want to kind of flag as we go into this, the importance of distinguishing effort from stress. Effort doesn't necessarily equal stress. What makes things stressful mainly is when we add negative emotions to them. That's a great summary of a pretty thorny territory. And that phrase there, effort isn't stress, is the foundation of so much of what we're going to talk about today. Because if you think about it, we put effort out into the world or effort into our bodies in so many different ways that are actually kind of good for us. Exercise 
quote unquote, stresses the system. It puts a stressor onto it that leads to positive adaptation of some kind. So part of the question that we're asking here when we explore stress is what leads to positive adaptation, you know, good changes in the face of effort versus negative adaptation, something that wears the body down over time. So we have this key distinction that I think most people can track. And I want to give a recent example. I just got back from Joshua Trey Park. Mm, mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of stuff that was really demanding, clambering over boulders. Uh, I've got some gimpy shoulders I got to be careful about. So I was managing that. Um, A little bit of internal feedback, a little pain signal here, a little discomfort there. And I was having the time of my life with a real good friend Mm. who's by the way, to put a plug in for him, Roddy McCauley, Climb with Roddy, <laughs> world-class climbing guide and an extraordinary good guy. So anyway, I was making a lot of effort there, right? Except I wouldn't describe that I was stressed by it. And one of the interesting features about the conditions that do tend to foster negative emotion in response to challenge is unpredictability and mm-hmm. uncontrollability, or or mm. I should say. And What was interesting about that situation we were in, there was a lot of stuff going on, but the larger frame felt somewhat familiar. I've done that kind of thing before. And also, we were under a lot of control. We were making choices. We knew what we were doing. I felt I was in a bubble of safety with my uber super duper climbing guide and friend, Roddy. And there wasn't much sense of unpredictability and uncontrollability. It's true, just to finish though, that with a certain kind of attitude and perspective that we're going to get into later, Mm -hmm. we can approach the things that are unpredictable and uncontrollable in life with a kind of internal shock absorber or stress Mm -hmm. absorber so that events are what they are, conditions are what they are, but internally, we don't feel invaded in our core with getting upset about it. To fill in some of what you're saying here, In 2011, there was this study, it was this big research review, it was called Stress Revisited, and it had a definition of stress that went something like this, to quote it. It was, definitions restricted to conditions where an environmental demand exceeds the natural regulatory capacity of an organism, in particular situations that include unpredictability and uncontrollability. So that's a lot of jargon there, obviously, but it highlights those two key factors that you named, situations where it's hard to anticipate what we're going to have to face or situations where it's hard to influence the outcomes are ones that are designed to make us particularly stressed out. And a lot of that rests on our own biological evolution through the ages. The things that tended to lead to situations where we were under a lot of threat were ones that we evolved to pay a ton of attention to, and therefore that put a lot of stressful load on the body. So I would love to sort of zoom out of this to that big picture contextual stuff. You were talking about Sapolsky and the zebras at the beginning of the conversation, Dad. So I'd love to give you an opportunity to do some of that framing here. Gregory Bateson, back in the 60s or so, developed the notion of the double bind. And it was used probably more generously than it should have been to explain some of the origins of schizophrenia, which we now understand better as actually being mainly biologically driven. But the notion was, if you want to drive somebody crazy, hold them responsible for results that are outside of their control. Mm -hmm. Or in the classic example, 
the mother, let's say, orders the kid, get in the pool, but don't get wet. It's a double bind. You know, mm-hmm. help me, help me. You're not doing it right. You can't help me the right way. Double bind. And it's powerful to think about that in our relationships. And uh, we had uh, Stephen Covey develop the idea further in the seven habits of highly effective people, which is really one of the great classic self-help books. And he made a distinction between what he called the circle of concern and the circle of control. Mm. And you can imagine them overlapping with regard to a particular Mm -hmm. issue. You might think about a particular relationship or situation you're grappling with in your life, maybe a health condition or a health issue. So there's the, to put it a little differently, there's the circle of concern, what you're concerned about, and then what can you actually influence? That was his word. Where those circles overlap, that's a zone of great opportunity. You care about Mm -hmm. it and you can do something about it. The territory where you have a lot of influence, you have resources, but you're not applying them to anything. That's kind of a waste and that's an opportunity for improvement. The territory where there's a lot of concern, but little influence, wow, that's such a prescription for suffering and stressful Mm. suffering. And I want to make a distinction here. We can have compassion for what we have concern about while also having the wisdom to understand that we have next to no influence over outcomes such as currently, Mm. let's say, the war in Ukraine. And so the takeaway here is to realize that for human beings, distinct from zebras, we worry about stuff (laughs) we don't have any influence over. Zebras don't worry about stuff. They know they're lions in the trees there or in the brush, and they know that sooner or later they're going to attack the herd, and what will be will be, you know, (laughs) they're right in the present. They don't make themselves wrong. They don't criticize themselves over Mm. things they can't control. And as a result, they just don't get stressed by them. That is a great summary of the zebra story, Dad. I've never heard you tell it that way, but that was a lovely way to do it. So to talk about the zebras for one second here to give some context to what we're saying, if you think about how an animal responds to threat, they're mostly chilling on the on the Serengeti, they're eating their grass, they're hanging out with the other zebras, they're having a perfectly fine time. And then some threat appears, you know, a predator, whatever it is. And that predator goes after the zebra, the zebra runs away, and then one way or another, things resolve themselves. Either the predator catches the zebra and it's all over for the zebra, or the zebra just goes back to chilling with the herd. They've dealt with a very, very high level of relatively short-term stress. Now, think about modern life, right? We're not beset by predators necessarily in the same way that that zebra is. But we're facing these low to moderate levels of long-term stress, what you like to call the pink zone, Dad. So you're not in the green zone, you're not in the red zone, you're just floating around in this amorphous, there's all of this threatening stuff out in the world that we have a lot of concern about, but we don't really have a lot of control over, and sure, maybe my immediate circle is kind of okay, but I'm also not sleeping enough, and I feel stressed out from work, and oh my god, I've got all these obligations— All of that, all of that moderate long-term stress leads to the accumulation of something that's known as allostatic load. And over a long enough period of time, allostatic load has been shown to have a lot of different health costs of various kinds. So it's one of the reasons that experiencing a lot of stress is not super healthy for you long-term. Yeah, it's really interesting to kind of make a distinction here between, let's call it the green zone, in which there's a certain amount of activation of the sympathetic branch of the nervous system 
And so here we are, we're participating in the world with, with passion. Maybe we're, we're working, we're engaged with things, but deep down inside, there's a certain sense of ease about it. Then there's a next level where there's a lot of sustained sympathetic nervous system activation with related so-called stress hormones, I'll just say generally things like cortisol and adrenaline. A person's driving, they feel driven, they're not upset, they're not unhappy, but they are sustaining a high level of output over a long period of time. That will induce allostatic load over time. I'll get back to that in a second. And then there's the third level, the real red zone, in which there's a combination of extreme sympathetic nervous system activation or extreme parasympathetic nervous system activation with the freeze response combined with a fair amount of negative emotion. Mm. As we move from level one to level two to level three, we start accumulating allostatic load. And Mm. speaking of myself, Mm. one of the things I learned was that at level two, I was accumulating allostatic load. Yeah. I would have people tell me, hey, Rick, you know, you work 10, 12 hours a day. I joke, I'm working half time now, only 30, 40 hours a week. And they would say, you're really stressed. Yeah. (laughs) And I say, I don't. I don't experience stress. Mm -hmm. I know what stress is like. I don't have negative emotion. I feel a lot of eudaimonic well-being. I'm fulfilled. Also, I have a lot of control over what I'm doing, not a lot of unpredictability. I really like the people I work with, including my precious son here, and I'm happy-dappy, right? And I finally came to realize that most of the time, creatures in the wild are chilling, what is it? Cats sleep yeah. 14 hours a day or some madness like that? You know, those yeah, eagers sure. are just conserving calories. They're just kind of yeah. hanging out. The lions are sleeping there in the sun or just kind of looking out over the savanna. And yet yeah. humans drive our hunter-gatherer ancestors. On the whole, studies have shown that they can typically get all the calories they need in a day, about four hours a day of rough effort. That's their workday roughly four hours a day, Mm -hmm. kind of more or less. I mean, we didn't evolve to work 12, 14 hours a day, especially when you throw in the commute and all the rest of that. And so it's important for people to appreciate, including ambitious, passionate, reach for the fences, swing for the fences kind of people, that you can accumulate allostatic load over time by just having sustained a lot of drive and pressure, even if you felt really good about it along the way. Totally. And in general, in the culture, we're getting a lot better at talking about what sometimes is referred to as capital T traumatic experiences, like big, singular, stressful events. But we're not so good, broadly speaking, in the culture about talking about the everyday wear and tear that we're subjected to by the way in which our social structures are set up. And I would love to spend a little bit of time here talking about the biological basis of all of that. I've gotten increasingly into the ways in which our biology influences our psychology and vice versa. I find this stuff really interesting. And I also think that it can help us develop a greater appreciation for the ways in which it's not just in our head. Because we have that phrase sometimes, right? Like, oh, it's just the stress is in your head or just think your way around it or whatever. 
And a lot of the time, no, it's actually in your body. And the body sensation is what's creating a psychological experience. So if this isn't of interest to you, you can skip forward a couple of minutes and we'll get it more into the what are the costs of this and what can you do about it. But I personally find this super helpful. So in order to manage all of those various threats that are out there in the world, our body developed a variety of different responsive systems. And these systems work together to help us acquire more of the things that we want and get away from more of the things that we want to avoid. And a big part of that process is a system that's known as the endocrine system. It's probably more commonly known as your hormone system. And this is a very, very important bodily system. It regulates virtually all of the body's processes. This includes everything from the development of our brains to, hey, the way that we respond to stress. And I'm going to simplify a lot of stuff here. And also, I'm not an endocrinologist, so give me a break if I, if I leave something out. Starting with your brain, the hypothalamus is a gland in the brain that links your nervous system to the endocrine system through your pituitary gland. And you can think of this as kind of a control center for the messages that go back and forth from the body to the brain. And these are called neuroendocrine cells. They're cells that release hormones into the bloodstream, and these are based on the messages that they receive from the nervous system. And we can unpack here the typical chain of events that happens when you experience a direct threat. So let's say you are an early human, you are wandering around and you encounter some kind of predator. Okay, what happens? So the hypothalamus, that's the gland in the brain, activates your adrenal glands, which are located on top of your kidneys. And this releases a flood of hormones, all of these messengers into your bloodstream. And you're going to be familiar with some of these. Some of them are adrenaline, some of them are no adrenaline, and some of them are cortisol. And this release is what we experience as the fight or flight response. And I want to pause a second there because I think that that's really important. We often think of fight or flight as a psychological state, but it's a physical state that we experience psychologically. And that, I think, is a really important distinction. So adrenaline increases your heart rate, it elevates your blood pressure, and it boosts the amount of energy that your body has. Then no adrenaline produces what's known as vasoconstriction. So your, uh, I believe it's your blood vessels get tighter. And if you think about it, if you've got water flowing through something, if you tighten it, it causes it to flow faster. So this increases your blood pressure. And it also increases how strongly the muscles of your heart contract, which increases your heart rate and your blood flow. And then cortisol is your primary stress hormone, and it increases the amount of sugar in your bloodstream. These are all functions that makes sense when we're under threat, right? Your body starts revving up to meet something. And many of them are really, really useful. But the greater the neuroendocrine response in your system, the greater demand we're putting on the body, right? The nervous system is basically telling your body to put the gas down on the car. And much like revving the engine of a car into the, the high RPMs, you're just putting more pressure on the system as a whole. Because the same hormones that ramp us up to deal with a threat inhibit many of the body's other systems. And this includes things like it decreases the amount of insulin you have available. It messes with the hormones that are related to sex drive and sexual behavior of various kinds. It lowers the growth and repair of tissue. It inhibits often the parasympathetic system. This gets a little bit complicated. Sometimes when we're under heavy threat, the parasympathetic system gets overactivated, but that's a whole other thing. And it also has a lot of interactions with digestion and your gut. 
So many people have very funky gut symptoms that are associated with being under chronic stress. And then alongside this hormonal process, there's a nervous system process that's occurring, which is driven in large part by the amygdala, which influences how we think and how we feel, our emotional reaction to all of the stuff that is going on in our body when we're under threat. And this is the biological underpinning of why that pink zone is such a problem for people long-term. And to oversimplify a little bit, if we feel like we're constantly under threat, or if we lead a life, we've got that 80-hour work week that you were describing, Dad, that includes a lot of persistent low-grade stress, we are constantly revving the engine of our stress system without giving it an opportunity to deactivate. That was a fantastic explanation, Forrest, and I have a confession, which is that when I wrote Buddha's Brain a, a while ago, I just found it really difficult to pull together a single, simple, direct, accurate, coherent account of mm. so-called stress response. And you did it, so tip of the hat to you. Oh, thanks, Dad. I appreciate yeah. that. <laughs> couple add-ons. Yeah, please. Just as you said, I want to I want to underline this sort of two-track process that involves both the nervous system and the endocrine system, the hormonal system, and they intertwine and they affect each other along the way. Also, everything you said applies to the pursuit of opportunity. Also, yeah. In other words, when mm -hmm. we're chasing the carrot, yep. the body revs up to get the target, you know, that the whatever it is that the hunter-gatherer or early primate that we evolved from is, is pursuing. So the system works that way as well. Another little add-on here is the ways in which vicious cycles can develop. And the amygdala, mm. which you mentioned, which is kind of like the alarm mm -hmm. bell, is sort of the main initiator of the run from the stick or chase the carrot kind of response in us. The amygdala has receptors on it for cortisol, one of the hormones you named. And what happens is that cortisol sensitizes the amygdala. So now it reacts more readily to some kind of stimulus and it reacts more intensively to those stimuli. Well, that can create a kind of vicious cycle in which mm -hmm. stress yesterday primes us. We wake up in the morning and we're already a little unsettled. We're already a little irritable. We're already a little apprehensive. We're already feeling kind of hurt. And then things happen and we react to them even more intensively. So that's one thing to really be aware of emotionally and internally. What's your level of anticipatory priming towards stress yeah. as a way of responding to the world? Totally. And that's such a key point to highlight here because one of the costs of the stress response system, essentially, what you're describing here, Dad, is that it sensitizes us to stress in the future. So stress yesterday tends to lead to more stress tomorrow, particularly when it's that kind of persistent stress that we're describing here. So that's one very, very clear cost. And I would love for us to spend a little bit of time here discussing some of the other costs of stress because we have a general cultural understanding of getting tired and worn down and all of that stuff. But there are some specific costs to stress that people, I think, don't really think about. And it might move some people who are a little bit more into that go, go, go mindset that you were describing in yourself, Dad, from years ago to appreciating the ways in which this definitely does have a cost associated with it. Oh, yeah. Like, for example, headaches, anxiety, mm -hmm. overwhelm, fatigue, depression, now here, I, I do want to make a really important point, mm -hmm. which is that there can be multiple pathways, multiple roads can lead to Rome. Yeah. 
So just because you find yourself in Rome doesn't mean that you necessarily got there through, fancy word alert, a purely endogenous source in the tissue of the body, (laughs) physically based. Because for example, people can have any one of these, now you're in Rome, a headache or anxiety or fatigue or depressed mood. For a million different reasons, yeah. Yeah, biological endogenous factors. On the other hand, absolutely. Our psychology is a major mediator between us and our environment. So it's also true that our environment you know, can be very threatening and a rational response to that, let's say, is anxiety. But that said, our own psychology is a major factor in the mind-body connection that Herbert Benson and other people have really talked about that can lead to these sort of physiological symptoms. So I think it's always prudent. Yeah. Now, work backwards from Rome and ask yourself, what roads got me here? Often multiple roads got you there. And often there's an unfortunately negatively synergistic interaction between psychological factors and biological factors. It's not either mm-hmm. or, it's both and, and they can exacerbate each other. So if you just try to work backwards from something you're dealing with in your life, it's really helpful to look in both places. And if you're dealing with experts, professionals who are sincerely trying to help you, Often when you have a great hammer, you start treating everything like a nail, but not everything is a nail. Pounding Mm -hmm. on screws is not very effective. Yeah, Trying to screw in a nail isn't very effective either. So even when you're dealing with specialists who might really emphasize one of these roads to Rome, make sure you're also thinking about other roads as well. Again, I think that's such a key point, not just for dealing with the stress response system, but just for being a human in the world (laughs) pretty broadly. One of the things we've talked about in the past is how you choose to work with clients and what kind of a therapist you are. We got that question once from a listener. And you're a real generalist. And I think that part of the reason that you are a generalist is an appreciation of what you're describing here, where a lot of people, when they become extreme specialists in one narrow field, they just start to use those solutions for a wide variety of problems, even if those solutions aren't so suited to them. So to give you an example of this, an interesting thing that stress does is that it impairs memory retrieval. So the parts of your brain that are responsible for fetching your memories, for lack of a better way of putting it, get impaired when you're under a lot of stress. And it's one of the reasons that people often forget everything that they've ever learned about a subject when they feel like they're put on the spot. Uh, There might be a piece of information that you know easily when you're sitting in front of your desk, but if somebody suddenly shoves a microphone or a camera in front of your face and asks you to answer a question, you go, uh, I have no idea. Your brain just short circuits. At the same time, there are a million different reasons that you could have a hard time remembering something. Maybe it just slips your mind. Maybe you didn't get enough sleep last night. Maybe you've had a tough day, you know, whatever it is. It might not just be because of that narrow stress response to just add on to what you're saying here. I don't know if you're going to whack me for saying this, but I just want to give a nod to this kind of semi-famous paragraph. I actually hope you, you know, make it available for the Patreon people. Yeah, sure. Robert Heinlein, Robert Heinlein, classic sci-fi. And basically he says a human being should be able to, and there's a long list, change a diaper, catch a fish, build a house, soothe a baby, just long kind of Mm. list of stuff that a human being should be able to do. And then the last line is specialization is for insects. (laughs) 
<laughs> Specialization is for insects. Oh man, that's that line's not going to get us into any trouble, Dad. I love that. Well, I'm glad that we can attribute it to somebody else, even though I kind of, sort of agree with it in my heart of hearts. But right, right, and maybe it's a preview of what we'll get into about how to manage life in ways that aren't so stressful. Because if you have your so-called Swiss Army knife with you, in other words, if you're mm, a generalist, mm-hmm. if you've got a lot of tools in your toolbox not just one great tool, then you're more able to manage the complexity of life without feeling so stressed by it. And that's also consistent with a lot of um, research on game theory. In other words, the person who has access to more moves is going to be more likely the person who wins the actual game. So you want to be able to have more moves in life. And that's also, of course, a nod to Steve Hayes and ACT, I know you're a fan there, of flexibility. And being able yeah. to deal with things in flexible ways, including work developed by my friend, Diana Hill, the psychologist, about the importance mm-hmm. of flexibility as we live in these very complex times. Totally agree. I think that's a great point. I don't think that the specialization thing is going to get us in trouble with too many people. <laughs> this is just definitely a generalist <laughs> podcast at heart, though. But okay. So a couple of other costs of stress before we get out of here that I think are particularly important to just put a flag in real quick. One of them is GI problems of various kinds, very, very commonly associated with stress. As I was saying, your stress response system inhibits the function of your gut in a variety of different ways. Things like IBS, reflux issues. And I want to make what I think is a really, really interesting and important point here. It's the ways in which stress is compounding. So when we're stressed, we change our behavior in ways that can seem, at least temporarily, to make a lot of sense, like we might self-soothe by eating certain kinds of food, or we might withdraw socially from other people because we're concerned that we don't have enough energy, there's a degree of that that can be extremely good for people, actually very, very healthy. But these behaviors that make sense for us in the short term tend to increase stress in the long term. One thing we're going to talk about later is the ways in which social support actually really, really insulates us from stress. And so if we are retreating inside of ourselves and conserving our effort and energy by not engaging socially with people, well, that can actually increase our stress in the long term. So it's something to really pay attention to. The ways in which when we're stressed, we might modify our behavior in ways that actually lead to more stress for us long term. There's this broad theme you're well aware of in psychology of the ways in which our solutions become problems. Yeah. As we go through life, little munchkins, we grow up or in adulthood, we deal with things. We solve various problems, for example, by self-soothing with a lot of food. That's how we got through our teen alcohol years. Alcohol is a classic one. Yeah, alcohol, yeah. you know, worked great at the time. <laughs> it was really great as long as it worked, right? The whole thing about jumping off a building, like it's all fine till you hit the ground, right? Yeah, totally. So it's helpful to recognize the ways in which some of our efforts maybe to manage stress are about avoiding the risk of painful, uncomfortable, unwanted experiences. Totally. When in fact, if we could just resource ourselves to rest in mindfulness of these experiences, of feeling tired, or there being some pain in the body, or let's say we feel awkward, with other people that we're in a work group with, whatever it might be. Or can we open to anxiety? 
Maybe there is a threat and we can't do much about it. Can we open to the anxiety about it without getting all bothered and upset about it? And it's interesting that there's some research. Uh, Kelly McGonigal, wonderful psychologist and speaker, has pointed out that uh, there's a distinction between uh, labeling what we're feeling as negative or problematic compared to labeling what we might be feeling at the time as excitement mm. or enthusiasm mm-hmm. or understandable weariness at the end of a long day. And there's an impact in how we label it. If we label our experiences as pathological or bad in some way or oh, really worrisome, we're going to get kind of stressed about them. Now, this doesn't mean that we should ignore our sorrow, our hurts, you know, our fear and what they're telling us. And it doesn't mean that we can somehow wish away the accumulating allostatic load from long, long, long hours, year after year after year, just by relabeling it. We have to be careful about that pitfall. But if we avoid that pitfall, the essence is really true, that we can go through life often by making efforts you know, significant efforts, make sure we refuel periodically, you know, let the zebras be our teachers. But if we are prepared to be more open to the experiences we're having along the way, we don't have to reach for the bottle. We don't have to reach for the bag of Mm -hmm. Oreos. We don't have to reach Mm -hmm. for, you know, an unhealthy relationship with somebody else. Yeah. We all know that the food we eat today affects how we feel tomorrow. But what if I told you that it could affect how you felt in 20 years? We're learning so much these days about our bodies, and one of the challenges for people right now is that there's an enormous amount of information out there, but it can be difficult to separate fact from fiction. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Naomi's Apple Review says Zoe's Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume, even if you don't understand the science, with loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting, cutting-edge science. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Naomi and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell as somebody who has a long history of painful acne and related skin issues, I know how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's where our sponsor, OneSkin, comes in. Most skincare available on the market is designed to provide a temporary reduction in symptoms, 
without addressing many of the underlying causes. OneSkin's OS01 line of products targets cellular senescence. This is a key hallmark of aging, directly with their proprietary OS01 peptide. The OS01 peptide can reduce the number of senescent cells by up to 50%, strengthening the skin barrier, improving skin health markers, and reducing visible signs of aging. I've been using their OS01 face topical supplement, and I love how simple it is. You just cleanse, you pat your skin dry, and apply twice daily. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. This has been a kind of dense episode so far, so I think that it would make sense for us to do a little recap, and then we'll get into what you were just previewing there, Dad, which is all of the things that we can do about all of this. So, five key points. First, effort is not stress. That was the key idea that you began our whole conversation with. And even moderate levels of stress can actually be pretty adaptive for us. Uh, we, we need to be able to bear some normal levels of stress to make it through this life. The key is that addition of negative emotion. Are you efforting with negative emotion or are you efforting without negative emotion? Second, the stress conditions that we're under these days are very different from the ones that our body evolved to face. We evolved to face very intense, very short bursts of stress. These days, we tend to face more moderate, low-level stress, but it's extended over a very long period of time. Then third, the accumulation of stress really matters. This is what we were talking about with allostatic load. Even low-grade stress over a long enough period of time becomes a real problem for people. Then fourth, Stress is adaptive in the short term. Our stress system, the whole thing that I was talking about with the endocrine system, is really, really useful when you're facing a life-threatening situation. But it's problematic if it's overactivated over the long term. And then finally, five, the pattern of the stress really matters. Unpredictability and uncontrollability is a key factor. And some of that, Dad, gets to what you were just saying about how do we relate to the stress that we're experiencing. So those are our five points so far from here. I would love to get into some material related to how we can positively adapt to stress as opposed to negatively adapt to it. In other words, experience a lot of costs from it. So to ask a very, very big question here, Dad, what can we do to both buffer ourselves better from stress and maybe even maximize our chances of getting a little value from our stressful experiences? Isn't that the question? That's it, right? Yeah, um, right? That's basically all of our work right there. <laughs> yeah, no no worries. How shall we live, <laughs> right? There's this um, definition of equanimity in the Buddhist mm. tradition um, as being able to walk evenly over uneven ground. Or, to quote Howard Thurman, to be able to look out at the world with quiet eyes. Mm. The world may be noisy, the world may be jumpy, but internally there can be a kind of quiet about it. So how do we do that? It's easy to get into a lot of details about this, but I want to just kind of give you, for me, three keys. And I'll go back to the story of the zebras. Love this, yeah. 
So the zebras are just chilling. They're chomping on the grass. They're looking out at the brush to see what's coming. You know, they're rubbing up against each other. It's all good. And then suddenly the lion attacks. So the zebras move from the green zone, just, you know, regular, ongoing, homeostatic well-being into a burst, a spike of red zone stress. And so, kaboom, it ends one way or another, and then the herd goes back into the green zone. So that's Mother Nature's blueprint. The takeaway point from that is, number one, to resource yourself psychologically, develop various strengths inside, know-how, capabilities, social skills, self-knowledge, mindfulness, self-compassion, self-worth, you know, trait calm, trait resilience. Develop these strengths inside so that when the proverbial lions attack, you feel relatively capable of dealing with it as much as you can. So right there is going to reduce the extent of the spike of stress and its duration. Second key point, when you're in that situation, you can help yourself a lot with a combination, essentially, of mindfulness, in which you're allowing the feelings to flow, with a tenderness for yourself, a kind of compassion and calming and self-soothing that sometimes reaches for simple things like drink a little water, touch your lips, put on a jacket if you're getting a little chilled, reach out to a friend so that you can help yourself climb back down from that spike of red zone stress. It's okay to do that as long as what you're doing is not problematic for you, like we talked about earlier. And then the third big takeaway is to really develop deep green as an internal trait in the core of yourself. So that even as in the kind of periphery of your being, the sort of outer reaches of your being, you're frazzled, you're pressured, you're irritated, you're dealing with stuff, but underneath it all, as a kind of field in which all that is sort of happening, there's this deep sense, really summarized as peacefulness, contentment, and love that's become increasingly hardwired into you as a real trait. Mm. So those are the big three for me. Number one, resource yourself so you can kind of deal with the necessary and inevitable challenges of life as effectively as possible without getting you know, too worked by them. Second, if you do get hammered, if you get upset about stuff or you get overwhelmed by stuff, you know, when you're in the middle of that spike of red zone stress, uh, practice mindfulness and warm-heartedness applied to yourself. And that'll help you come down out of it relatively quickly. And then third, as much as you can, repeatedly internalize authentic, ordinary experiences in your everyday life of basic well-being. So you increasingly hardwire into your nervous system an underlying sense of peacefulness, contentment, and love. That was a great summary of our three-year run with the podcast, Dad. So we can we can just wrap it up, put a bow on it. That was it. That was the whole thing. You know, nice, will, nice, tiny move into three minutes or for three years. Yeah, we just we should just republish that every week and be like, all right, guys, here you go. <laughs> That's really sweet. <laughs> How about you? I mean, what, it, what, what, yeah. what would you add to that? All jokes aside, this is what we wrote our whole book on, right? The whole yeah. the book Resilient is basically an attempt to answer this question. 
But to try to simplify it for for this particular episode, it's really, really easy, I think, to get a little over-focused on specific interventions. Mm. Therapy, mindfulness, meditation, various complex strategies that people have for maximizing well-being. But one of the things that's really increasingly popped up in the research literature over the last 10 years or so is this return to fundamental basic lifestyle factors and the influence that these basic lifestyle factors can have on our psychology. Basic things, getting enough exercise, eating good food, spending time in nature, having some fulfilling relationships, taking some time for recreation. You add all of that up, it plays just an enormous role in people's physical and mental health. So a lot of this, I think, is about establishing the ground. And to each of those things I just said, somebody listening might understandably say something along the lines of, well, okay, but what about dot, dot, dot? What if I don't have enough time for this? What if I am having a hard time finding fulfilling relationships out in the world? What if I'm under a lot of pressure because of my work life? And that's all super real. I'm not poo-pooing that at all. And we've created a lot of material related to many of those questions in terms of specific ways to address them. But I do want to highlight the importance of those underlying lifestyle factors in terms of the ways that they contribute to our physical and mental well-being. And if you're in an environment that does not have a lot of those lifestyle factors, wow, a number one point before developing an elaborate meditation practice or before spending a ton of money on therapy is probably, hey, how can we move into an environment that has more of those things? You know, one thing, too, is to take a real look at your life and ask yourself, do I really need to do that? Mm. Do I really need to put up with that? Do I really need to get worked up about that? Do I really need to care about that? And obviously there's a middle place where it's important to just not check out and become apathetic and you know, totally. really hedonically selfish. But to really ask yourself, for example, I, I've been working on this myself a lot. Do I really need to get bothered by something? It is what it is. I can be discerning about it. I can have a passing sense of sadness or poignance or, you know, I would say kind of a moral outrage bit about it. But that's really different from dwelling in mm -hmm. something that is upsetting and irritating. So that's one thing. And another thing, too, to think about is, and Obviously, we want to acknowledge privilege here that we have. And a lot of people don't have choices about certain stressful totally. conditions. They just have to deal with. Yeah. But I would just encourage people to uh, ask themselves, am I doing this because I really want to do it or because I'm trying to impress or please somebody else? Mm -hmm. Am I doing this corporate gig or this kind of way of life because I really want to do it? Or because I'm, I've bought into this notion that if I'm not exhausted at the end of the day, I haven't been working hard enough, and I'm not a real good team player. You know, really, a lot of other mm -hmm. people, by the way, will, and a lot of institutions in the economic system that we're in, will spin certain kinds of beguiling fantasies out there for people to seduce them into acting and living in ways that are really great for the corporation, are really good for the consumer economy, but over time, really stress people out and make them accumulate allostatic load as a result. You know, are you doing what you're doing because you bought into that, or because you feel the pressure to do that, or because you really, really want to do it? Yeah, 
Yeah, really, really good distinction here, Dad. And I think that alongside this for me is an increasing recognition and acceptance of my human limitations out in the world and the ways in which there are things that I simply can do nothing about. And I wish I could do something about them, but I just can't. And this includes basic uncertainties and basic challenges and coming to terms with the reality that life can be really hard sometimes and that there isn't always a great answer to the problem that you're facing. And you shared actually recently with me, Dad, a kind of beautiful story about, I want you to tell it rather than me, but it was somebody where you were describing uh, their experience being in a cave in Tibet and this is yeah. intense meditation practice for a long period of time. Would you mind just sharing that here? I thought it was a great, great way to put this. This story comes from the wonderful being and teacher Ani Tenzin Palmo, which is the Tibetan language name for a woman from Great Britain who traveled to Tibet as a young woman and have spent altogether probably about 12 years in solitary retreat, as well as a lot of other deep, deep practice. I'm taking this from her book, Reflections on a Mountain Lake, a lovely, beautiful book of very direct wisdom. And so the story goes, and I'm doing this from memory, is that she was all alone in a cave high in the mountains in Tibet. You can just imagine that, I don't know, 20,000 feet, resupplied with food every few days. Uh, if the snows came, they couldn't bring her food, and she just had to deal with it. And she's in this cave meditating 10, 12 hours a day, including sitting in a kind of wooden frame that keeps her upright so she doesn't fall asleep, so she can really practice very deeply. She's all alone. And Apparently, one time, a blizzard came through, and it started filling her cave, including above her, with snow that would kind of somehow work its way down and be above her. Mm -hmm. And there she was once, meditating away, and suddenly this big blanket of snow fell down upon her, and she you know, could have suffocated. It was a little bit like being caught in her own mini avalanche. And her body naturally started, you know, mobilizing. And then the thought came to her, what did you expect from samsara? Samsara being the term for this ordinary realm of life, this ordinary world, distinct from nirvana as a way of speaking to the underlying ground of all through which worldly conditions proceed. As she had that insight, it was revelatory for her. So, ba-boom, what did you expect from samsara, Yeah, this world? And she just, you know, kind of laughed, and she was, all the terror went away, all everything went away. She, you know, moved around a little bit. I'm sure she dealt with her situation in practical ways. But there's such a teaching there. It's a kind of humor, almost. I mean, in a previous episode, we talked about grim humor is a way of dealing sometimes with the difficulties of life yeah. that you can't control. And totally. I think your point here for us is just so true. It goes back to something we talked about in the very beginning about unpredictability and uncontrollability. And if we live in this life, right, with this sense of each moment is fresh as it passes away. I was talking with a friend of mine, Mu Song, uh, who's a spiritual director at Barry Center for Buddhist Studies once, and asked him, so what are you, what are you focused on these days in your own practice? always a good question. And he said, to have no expectations whatsoever. And mm. that may sound like a cliche, but to really do that is to swim against the tide, uh, the yeah. currents of the brain, which is a prediction machine. 
continually generating expectations. Yeah. So to really be on top, to be so in the present as it mm. passes through you, right? Or as you pass through it onto the next moment, to be in such a way that you're not functioning with expectations that kind of insist on the future being a certain way. That's some seriously deep practice. Yeah. There's this dance in so many of the psychological traditions that we've talked about on this show. And it also shows up in a lot of the contemplative traditions as well, as you're describing. You're talking about these these two very significant Buddhist figures in terms of their own practice. That's the tradition that they come from, and you really see it there. Between this focus on claiming the agency that we do have really fully, mm -hmm. getting very into what can I do in the world, including how can I positively support other people, which we talk about on the podcast all the time. Alongside this acceptance of our own limitations and a relinquishing of control, and that dance between max agency on the one hand and max acceptance on the other is, to me, the absolute core of mental health and personal growth. If you can get to max on both sides, then you've probably got it figured out. Well, I think you've summarized three years of the podcast right there in your own way. You know, call it here. <laughs> We've really taken people on a on a journey. I I do want to mention two quick things about what we can do to repair the effects of yeah, I would love stress. That. Just kind of flag totally. them both. They're both to some extent under our control. One is that cortisol, besides sensitizing the amygdala can gradually overstimulate and eventually kill cells in a nearby part of the brain, the hippocampus, to the point that the hippocampi, because there are two of them technically, can become measurably shrunken in people who've had to deal with a lot of intense, chronic, long-term stress. And that goes to the memory impairments you talk about, because the hippocampus is very involved in, in the function of memory. One thing that people can focus on is just what you said, exercise, because Exercise mm -hmm. promotes neurogenesis, the birth of new baby neurons in the hippocampus. So exercise, good thing there. Okay, point one. Point two, stress is inflammatory. I think you said this mm -hmm. in your list somewhere. And we can get stuck in a kind of chronic inflammatory condition. So people can just, without you know going off the deep end, um, take a look at inflammation as a subtle background state of being in their body as one of the consequences of allostatic load over time. And, you know, take a look, maybe do a little testing of your inflammatory markers, maybe do some simple sensible things that can kind of settle down the body's inflammatory response. But that's another thing that people can do and just pay attention to in terms of repairing as much as you can the consequences of long-term stress. Great couple of points to toss a few other couple of points as we move to the end here. Things that tend to really help. The first, social support of different kinds. We have had a number of great conversations at this point with Bruce Perry, who is an awesome guy who works on childhood trauma. And one of the things that he's really emphasized in his work and just has been shown in the broader literature on traumatic experiences is the huge impact that having even just a couple of close supportive people in your life can have in terms of leading to more positive outcomes for people who come from extremely stressful, very, very high trauma backgrounds. 
So clearly there's a takeaway there, right? If you're somebody who's exposed to a lot of stress, it makes a lot of sense to look for ways that you could get more social support into your life, whether that's by picking up a hobby through which you can find new friends, valuing the relationships that you already have, reaching out to people when you feel particularly stressed, however that looks like for you. Then another one that I just want to highlight here is uh, nature. You mentioned Joshua Tree very early on in the conversation. I think that I also said something about spending a little bit of extra time in nature as a lifestyle factor. There's this growing body of research that is really suggesting that even spending like a 20-minute walk in a natural environment can significantly reduce a lot of the negative impacts of stress that you experience over the course of a day. So if you're somebody who spends a lot of time, as I do, in, inside, where you're just sitting at your desk plugging away in front of the computer for long hours, that's what most of my work looks like, there's a lot of benefit to getting outside, getting out into nature, if that's a resource that's available to you locally. And of course, there are plenty of people who don't have that as a resource. But even just walking around the block can sometimes be pretty helpful for people. So those are two things I just want to put a flag in here. One last thing here as we finish up, it's to think about the stresses that other people are going through and how you can relate to it, including in helpful ways, for their sake, and also maybe for your sake as well. So here I want yeah. to flag the work of Shelley Taylor at UCLA, fantastic body of work that took a look at different ways to think about the response to challenges rather than fighting or fleeing, which she pointed out, can tend to be framed as a more masculine kind of model. And mm. she talked about women as managing challenging unwanted conditions through tending and befriending, mm. distinct from fighting or fleeing. It's a whole body of mm. work. It's complex. I encourage people to take a look at it. Shelley Taylor, Tend and Befriend. But it is interesting to realize that when people move into tending and befriending, and men do a lot of tending and befriending, of course, as well in various ways. When we move into tending and befriending, cortisol levels in our own body start dropping. We feel mm -hmm. less stressed through tending and befriending. Beyond whatever the personal benefits might be, I just think it's helpful to realize that everyone has a secret struggle. Everyone walking next to you or sleeping next to you or eating next to you is grappling with stuff. And we can mm. be compassionate about what they're dealing yeah. with. And we can also think about how we're a stressor for them. You know, one of the things I came to realize actually on a board I was on some years ago was that actually the board itself didn't really have a function, that power was really held in the executive director of the organization and a couple of key founders and that, you know, I was actually putting people under a lot of stress because I was deluded in thinking that the board actually had a material function. And I realized <laughs> You that, kept on trying to really, do things. What were you doing, Dad? I know. And I, and I realized I realized that actually I was just upsetting a lot of people. Anyway, long story short, to think about our how sometimes our well-intended efforts can be stressors for other people as well as dumping our negative emotions on them and so forth. Anyway, just taking other yeah. people into account and being helpful for their sake, including maybe because it's got a bonus benefit for you in terms of tending and befriending. 
Yeah, and also when other people are stressed in our sphere, it tends to stress us out too. So there is a uh, there is a selfish benefit that is also an altruistic benefit. And man, aren't uh, those the best kinds of benefits when then when they get to travel together? When it's good for me and it's good for you, that's great, right there. So we explored great. a ton of material today related to the stress system and just generally how to think about and understand stress better. Today's episode was pretty dense. I'm going to do my best to keep this recap kind of summary. So there was a lot that we explored today that will not be included in the recap. I'm just trying to highlight the major points here. So we began today's episode with Rick offering a general framing of stress, and he made a key distinction. Effort isn't stress. We all need to effort in the course of our lives. But stress, the stress part is a little bit more optional. And the key distinction between effort and stress is often the presence of negative emotion. If you're just working out at the gym and you feel good about yourself and you're having a great time, you're putting a lot of stress on the system, but you're not experiencing a lot of psychological stress. And that's a key distinction. Connected to that, unpredictability and uncontrollability are two major factors that tend to make situations much more stressful. There's an old line, it goes something like, if you want to drive someone insane, hold them very responsible for situations that are not under their control. Related to that, there are two factors that tend to really increase how stressful a situation is. The first one is unpredictability, where you feel like it's difficult to anticipate what's going to happen to you next. And the second one is uncontrollability, where you feel like it's hard for you to influence the situation in a positive way. And if we look around us at our modern world, what do we see a lot of? We see a lot of unpredictability and a lot of uncontrollability. And that goes to a larger point about our stress response system as a whole. If you think of a zebra being on the Serengeti when it's experiencing stress, what you have is these short-term bursts of a lot of stress. That zebra is being chased by a lion. But then, one way or another, that stress comes to an end, and the zebra recovers back to what Rick likes to call the green zone of rest and recovery. And that's Mother Nature's blueprint for us. These short periods of a lot of stress balanced out with these very long periods of rest and recovery. But what we have today in our modern world is a much more moderate, maybe even low level of stress for many people, for some people probably more moderate, but stress that just goes on and on and on without ever really abating. And Rick likes to call this the pink zone. You're not quite in the green zone. You're not quite in the red zone. You're just trapped in this very uncomfortable pink zone. And if we stay in that pink zone for long enough, it leads to a lot of accumulation of what's known as allostatic load. All biological systems seek what is known as homeostasis, and this is your natural resting state. And then the body performs something that's known as allostasis in order to keep us in homeostasis. So that's why it's known as allostatic load. And you can just think of this very simply as the cumulative burden that stress puts on your body. And that's why I did this whole rundown on the endocrine system, where I described how your body naturally responds to a stressful situation. And in doing that, I was just trying to explain why this puts a burden on our bodies and why it comes with costs over time. 
We then got into those specific costs. This includes everything from headaches and fatigue, very, very well-known symptoms of stress, to anxiety and overwhelm, also pretty well-known, to maybe some less well-known symptoms that can come out of stress. And this includes a lot of gastrointestinal problems, issues with the stomach, social withdrawal, uh, the impairment of your immune system, which I don't think that I said during the episode, but that's actually something that comes out of stress as well. Then if you found that you can't think straight while under a lot of stress, you are not alone. The ability to access what's known as higher-order processing, so these are more the cortical structures of the brain, gets impaired when we're under stress. Same for memory retrieval. If you feel like you can't remember something when you're put on the spot or you're taking a test, well, that's a symptom of stress as well. But maybe more than anything else, there are two key points to take away from this section— The first is that stress in the past sensitizes the body to stress in the future. So if you're somebody who has a lot of stress in your personal history, that actually makes you more vulnerable to future stressors. And then second point, stress is compounding. Stress tends to lead to more stress, not just because we get sensitized, but because we start to take on behaviors that tend to result in stress in the future. These behaviors might be temporarily restorative for us, whether it's various forms of stress eating or retreating socially in order to protect our limited energy. But over the long haul, this just tends to lead to more stress. Then we closed by talking about some specific interventions, different ways that people can push back against the stress in their life and maybe even lead to some positive adaptation from stress as opposed to negative adaptation. The first thing that I highlighted is the importance of basic lifestyle factors. This includes everything from exercise to nutrition to spending some time in nature or having more fulfilling relationships. Then alongside improving those various environmental factors, a huge part of this is both fully claiming our agency, really seeing clearly the ways in which we can influence our world in a positive way. And then alongside that, giving what I sometimes call the cosmic shrug. It's a recognition and an acceptance of our human limitations and the ways in which, man, there's a lot of stuff out there that we just can't do a lot about. And that can have a really cool effect. It can allow us to relinquish a feeling of control that was false in the first place. And to speak to some of the things that Rick said— can move us toward going, you know what, I'm concerned about that, but I don't have a lot of influence over it. And because I don't have a lot of influence over it, I'm going to try to relinquish some of that concern. A few other specific interventions that we highlighted were things like consistent exercise, getting enough social support from other people, various mindfulness and meditative practices like mindfulness-based stress reduction, And then finally, spending time in nature. There's a lot of really interesting research out there on the positive impact that spending the time in nature can have on our whole stress response system. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It uh, took a lot of effort to pull together. I've been really excited about this one, so I'm really interested in hearing people's feedback about it. If you would like to reach out to the podcast, you can find us through a wide variety of social media platforms. I've included links to those in the description of today's episode. And you can also reach us at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. And if you've been enjoying the podcast for a while, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. And if you want to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. 
And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a whole bunch of great benefits in return. Until next time, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon.